You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 67. And if you don't want Game of Thrones spoilers, just skip ahead two minutes. I tried to discuss it without giving, getting, giving spoilers, but uh, it didn't really, uh, I didn't do a very good job of it. So just two minutes. In any future episodes, anything that happened in Game of Thrones is fair game because this is just the, the day after. So I want to be careful. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Clark. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to another Local Maximum. First of all, Game of Thrones last night. I know this season has been kind of rushed on time with only six episodes, and so it sort of paced really fast, but I thought that was a really poetic ending. Um, there's a lot of bookends and similar that rhyme with the beginning, and I know 90% of you saw it with me last night, and 5% of you don't want any spoilers, and the other 5% just want everyone to shut up about Game of Thrones already, but that 5% should just um, lay low for a little while, because we will. This was just the last one. It was the last episode, so of course we've got to talk about it. I just want to point back to episode 30 of The Local Maximum, which was one of those articles about how they use machine learning to predict who will live and who will die by the end of Game of Thrones. There's been a bunch of those, and it's really interesting because they ranked... 10 characters, and of the top five most likely to die, die, and the top half, four actually died. And of the bottom five, the five most likely to live, uh, four actually lived. So I would say they did pretty well. I kind of thought there was something silly about doing this model, as it's more of a way, you know, way to get PR, and the story might try to uh, subvert expectations of their model. But there are patterns to a story that they may have figured out, so maybe it can be predicted after all. I will say... The guy that they predicted to die who didn't, they gave him a 66% chance of death by the end of the show, and that that person actually got the Iron Throne, or what's left of it, the Iron Blob, I guess, at the end of it. All right, no more spoilers. We're going to talk about some developments in China today, particularly the idea behind the social credit score and the plight of the Uyghurs in Western China. Now, I don't have any listeners from mainland China, actually. This is an international podcast, as most podcasts are um, across the English-speaking world, world, but there are people who speak English in, in a lot of countries. We have listeners in Taiwan and Hong Kong, according to SoundCloud, and it surprises me that there are zero in mainland China, but I guess either we don't have statistics from there or the podcatchers for the local maximum are not available. Anywho, little no listeners in China, I've never been to China, so there's a lot about Chinese culture that maybe I don't understand. So as a matter of course here, I don't want to go in and stand in judgment but look at some of the developments that are going on and see if we can uh, learn from them here. And yes, they'll certainly be critical of the Chinese government. It's hard not to be. There clearly are severe human rights abuses in Western China and throughout China. It's hard to know the scale and scope. And obviously, this doesn't mean I'm supporting any particular American policy in response. But if you want a true rant, there are other podcasters out there and even some American presidents who will provide that for you. So the news coming to the U.S. and the English-speaking world from China is heavily filtered. I mean, you know, one of the stories I, I have here is from the New York Post, for crying out loud. So I don't even know if these are the most important stories happening in China right now. But again, let's focus on what we can learn and how we can think about these stories so that we don't find ourselves in a similar situation. All right. I want your feedback if you know anything about these stories that I don't, or if you think any of my analogies are off base, because this is what creates great discussion and learning. That's localmaxradio at gmail.com. Back in episode 14, we talked about an op-ed 
in an American newspaper by a Chinese professor saying that AI and, uh, you know, the, the, the development of better and better AI will perfect socialism. And we got a great response to that discussion while I basically rebutted him. No, no, no. This is the Internet. I destroyed him. But it looks like the government, uh, the Chinese government might be taking those words to heart, actually. So the first story here is the social credit score. This is a national reputation system, a score that you receive that tells people whether or not you are trustworthy. And the algorithm and inputs are determined by the government. Uh, The second story is the situation of the Uyghurs in western China. That's uh, Xinjiang, a very mountainous region. And the Uyghurs, that's actually spelled U-I-G-H-E-R-S, are local rural Muslims, and they are being forced to go through, quote, re-education. So, and, and there are some really very chilling quotes uh, from the um, NPR investigative article. I just want to make a few local maximum-related points about it. The third story from last month is about how in one business school, Chinese MBA students were exposed to Friedrich Hayek, a free market, uh, like, yeah, a really anti-communist thinker, and the resulting discussion that took place in that class. And that's interesting. In undergrad, they just had had me read Paul Krugman. Uh, There's a little bit of a theme here when it comes to beliefs and causality, which I'll expand on as we go through. Okay, so first up is China's social credit score. I have a few articles on this, ranging from Psychology Today to the New York Post. So there's a wide range of of, of reporting here. First, what is the social credit system and why is it being implemented? According to Psychology Today article, Uh, The Psychology Today article, ratings are affected based on information such as how much debt one owes, which might be made publicly available, one's history of jaywalking, one's history of volunteerism or lack of volunteerism, and uh, documented instances of gossiping, and more. Now, the reasoning behind this is to keep the enormous population in line as communities get huge, and there's no longer that sense of local bonding that keeps people behaving according to local norms. And the article in Psychology Today cites the population of China being much larger than the U.S. as a reason for this. But I'm kind of having trouble understanding why here in New York City, for example, we wouldn't just run into the same problem. I mean, I go downstairs, people just shout at me, they don't like the way I look or whatever, and there are no consequences there. So I don't see how, you know, tripling the size of the city would make that any worse. So obviously... This whole idea of a social credit system creeps people out, and comparisons have been drawn to that Black Mirror episode with Bryce Dallas Howard. Anyone see that? It was so cringy. She had to, like, practice her smile in front of the mirror for hours just to, like, move up in the ratings so she could move up in the world. Anyway, I should first point out similar scores that we have here in the U.S. and around the world. Uh, the first one that comes to mind is our, you know, our non-social credit score, uh, which is just known as the credit score. You know, have you paid your bills and your loans on time? So why isn't that, why doesn't that seem as creepy? Well, I'd, I'd like to hear your answer, but I think that's, it's because that's for a specific situation. Uh, there are a lot of things that you can do here, even if you have a bad credit score, especially if you have cash. Also, Uh, the credit score, I think it's all done by private companies. FICO is a private company, and this means that they are specifically being paid to give good information to their clients, people looking for the credit score to give loans or apartments or whatever. And 
you know, there could be competition. So there's several credit scores. The idea that they're going to start uh, to be used to attack political opponents and things like that is pretty far-fetched. But, well, I don't know if they act like our social media companies, maybe not. But they have been accused of being unfairly discriminatory. That's true. It's not proven, so I can't evaluate that right now. But at least we know it's not by the government, and I do believe that you know the competition will keep it somewhat in check. So another score that we all have that might be similar as well as our online ratings. And that's what you know Black Mirror was on about. And a good example of that is your Uber rating. If you use Uber, you know that after you your, your Uber drivers pick you up and they drop you off at your destination, uh, you know you, that you rate them. But did you know that they rate you back? Most people know that. But uh, I could look up my score. Let's see, it's, uh, it's under my name here. Ah, okay. My score, my Uber score is 4.75. I think that's not too bad. Uh, one Uber driver didn't like me because I asked him to pick me up at a, uh, like a block early, you know, and he said it was like against the rules to do that. And I don't know, he gave me like a little speech about it. I, I kind of have a feeling that that guy uh, did, or like he didn't like that I texted him. He said I had to call him or something like that. I don't know. That guy didn't like what I did. I bet uh, he gave me a bad rating. Uh, but but uh, otherwise, maybe I'll be high, I would be higher. But again, these scores have some kind of algorithm based on other people's ratings, and it only affects your ability to get an Uber ride. You can still pick up a Lyft ride anyway. And even if you want to use Uber, I bet there are some drivers, especially if uh, you know they themselves have a lower score, who would pick you up even if your score gets really low. So anyway... The Post article claims that you'll receive an embarrassing ringtone if your score is bad. That doesn't make sense. Are they really hacking everyone's like iPhones and stuff? Doesn't everyone vibrate now? Okay, well, that one doesn't make sense. But uh, more troubling, if you have a low social credit score in China, you might not be allowed on flights. It's not like Uber where you can go to Lyft. That's the problem when it's a centralized government score. And according to the article, a low-rated person can be excluded from jobs, the housing market, car loans, or even hotels, and also force your children into the public schools and slow down your internet. Wow. And if your score is too low, it says that you'll go to a re-education camp, not a fun camp, uh, even though you haven't broken any specific law. So this is the pre-crime of the 21st century. The Chinese government says that the system will restore social trust. From this, I ask the following question. How do we, if you don't like this, how do we avoid this type of thinking? Now, before responding, I should read the following quote. Chinese Communist Party publications scoff that Westerners are simply too unsophisticated to understand the wonders of the new system. In the words of China's Global Times, the hypothetical theories of the West are based on their ignorance. The massive social credit system, it goes on to say, is simply beyond the understanding of Western countries. Well, fair enough. As I said, I don't understand China, but I do understand the harm that is done when you give one organization a monopoly on truth. And I do understand the unpredictability that can arise in a system that takes many complex inputs from all areas of life and tries to filter them down to a single score. So... First, the score is bound to be clunky. Even if someone sets it up good, algorithm changes are going to get very political very fast, and it'll be hard to to make changes, and um, you might have to lobby for them, and therefore you'll see it start degrading over time, sort of like the tax code. Back to the monopoly on truth idea. Even if you pick 
the best person you can think of to own that monopoly, eventually it will get subverted to certain ends, either by that person or people who seek to manipulate that person. We're all in bubbles of some kind, after all. We don't know every person, every culture. And even within China, the country is so huge and it's surprisingly diverse. Uh, you know, this is bound to be a hindrance on freedom. So I have to agree with the New York Post here. It's a dystopian nightmare. Hopefully the Chinese people will find ways around it and use other signals to transact with each other, either online ratings or even traditional family ties will do just to get around, you know, this system in case you you unfairly get a bad score. All right. So next I want to address this article about the Uyghurs and NPR. The headline is Uyghurs held for extremist thoughts, quote, extremist thoughts they didn't know they had. Now, we've been exploring here in the local maximum the debates that we're having here in the U.S. and in many countries about what types of topics are considered outside the realm of debate and could get you kicked off social media, for example. And in some cases, we have people getting socially ostracized, losing their jobs, and angry Twitter mobs, which is, you know, which, which all of this can get out of control. Um, in China, this is dealt with very differently. The author of this NPR story is Rob Schmitz, uh, visited the detention centers in Western China, and the article hints at the fact that he's really seeing the best side of the situation. So it was sort of staged by the Chinese government. And quoting from the article, on the fifth day of a government-sponsored media tour last month at a detention facility in the far western city of Kashgar, two dozen Uyghur detainees belted out the American children's song, If You're Happy and You Know It, Clap Your Hands. The group of adults, some as old as 40, and dressed in colorful ethnic Uyghur costumes, stumbled over the English lyrics. From the front of the classroom, their teacher guided them to stand up, sing, and, at the song's cue, clap their hands in unison and attempt to show the visiting group of skeptical reporters that despite the circumstances, they were living up to the lyrics. So, essentially, we're kind of privy to the, they're putting the best foot, feet forward, privy to the best of these camps. Uh, some other reports suggest that they are more like, you know, concentration camps along with physical torture. And while it certainly looks like there may be physical torture, I'm looking at a bit of the psychological torture as well. Again, quoting, uh, Mejit Mahmoud, I hope I'm pronouncing that, the ethnic Uyghur principal of what authorities call the Kashgar Vocational Education and Training Center insists that the 1,500 students under his watch, most of whom are Uyghur, are treated well and free to return home to their families on the weekends. People here have been infected by extremist thoughts, says Mamut. They brought, broke the relevant laws, but their crimes are so minor that they are exempted from criminal, criminal punishment. The government wants to save and educate them, converting them here at this center. So then the article takes a very interesting turn, in my opinion, because there's a question of, you know, why is the Chinese government really doing this? Well, he said the local government has proof uh, that it has been able to prevent terrorist activity through this type of training. So that might be a pretty good sell for the Chinese citizens right there. But I think with this situation, you have to dig deeper. You know, what is the proof? They certainly didn't give us anything. It's cited in the article that certain people in the community had crazy beliefs. Maybe they believed that killing a non-believer would result in going to heaven. Okay, so maybe that's not good, but they didn't take that specific, uh, uh, that specific action on the belief. So I don't know how much I can believe that they had that belief. So it looks like they also rejected 
government issue IDs, government issue money. They put their children in different schools. They don't indoctrinate their children in the way that the government wants. So it's hard for me not to see this as a way to get certain traditional populations to, quote, get with the program. And it's hard for me not to see some parallels to things that went on in the United States. Uh, The first is the treatment of the Native Americans. There were attempts to, quote, civilize them. And I want to believe at least some of those efforts brought valid education and training. But what you really hear, you know, from Native Americans themselves, the story of children being taken away against their parents' will to these boarding schools to kind of strip them of their culture. I mean, even traditional dancing, which is kind of harmless, wasn't allowed in these schools. So the government sells it as, you know, civilizing the Indians when really it's just trying to stamp out their culture. Um, This is we don't do that anymore. This was, you know, back in the day, but more recent than you would think. And another example, of course, is just the way people in the U.S. tend to look down on kind of hillbillies or people in Appalachia. And the government doesn't really do anything to them in particular, but there is a certain neglect of these areas and a certain attitude that they are backwards. And, you know, those areas, as you might know, ended up voting heavily for Donald Trump, even though they used to be the most democratic areas in the U.S., uh, I think. Uh, and, and that shift is because of this attitude. Now, some of the quotes this person got uh, at, on NPR, and there's audio with the translation that you could see over at NPR, localnextradio.com slash 67 for all the links. Um, they're just, I don't know, they're chilling, they're infuriating. So here's one of them. I have serious extremist thoughts, echoing nearly every detainee who spoke with NPR. I made my children participate in religious activities from a young age. And I didn't let them sing and dance in a cultural entertainment activity. I interfered with their personal freedom. I am very grateful for the Communist Party and the government for giving me such a good opportunity to study, she says. I've learned what I should and what I shouldn't do, what is legal and what is illegal, what is religion and what is extremism. Good grief! I mean, if I were in those camps, I would probably say the same thing. You know, thank you so much, Communist Party, for keeping me in the camp and not exacting further punishment. You're so great. I see the error of my ways, because if you say anything else, you might not be getting out of there anytime soon. Also, your kid's personal freedom to go to government-sanctioned events. Yeah. All of a sudden, the Chinese government cares about personal freedom. Another one strikes a similar tone. Pujang says that police also looked through his phone and saw that he had viewed online videos showing Osama bin Laden trading al-Qaeda members. I didn't know I was breaking the law, says Pujang. I made a big mistake, but the party and the government thought I was the victim, so they've given me great opportunity to correct my behavior. Jeez, after, after 9-11, those uh, Osama bin Laden trading videos were like on our news every single day. Okay. Uh, they've given me a great opportunity to correct my behavior. Oh, thank you so much. But I think that uh, this is the guy that the Chinese government wants wants to quote here, that this is what they want people to hear, because this raises the big issue that the Chinese government is putting up, which is that they are actually preventing another 9-11 terrorist attack that could occur on their soil this time. And... Our government, of course, in in the U.S., uh, of course, did a lot in the name of preventing terrorist attacks after 9-11, you know, with the Patriot Act, not all of it justified. And, you know, obviously, preventing these attacks is is a good thing. I I believe in prevention, obviously. And so this is a major question that I have. When is any of this put to the test to actually 
you know, scientifically prove this causal link to show that they are reducing the risk of terrorism and not just exacting these costs on society. You know, not that they would be justified in, in doing all of it if, if it were, but such a test would be a way to, you know, stop the excesses here. You know, I'll, I'll make this analogy. If you start a business and you say, if I do X, Y, and Z, then I'm going to earn profit. Well, there's a natural test there. If you're wrong, then you go out of business. Same with recommending changes to your company as a data scientist. Sometimes you think your users are going to react one way to a change, and then you do an A-B test, or you run a machine-learned causality model, and then you find out that what you thought just isn't true. So we talked about those models, um, by the way, in, in episode 31. So a lot of researcher, a lot of resources go into drawing these causality links and running them through falsifiable tests um, in the market and uh, and in government and in some areas of government. And um, when you can just claim causal links without testing it, then unfortunately you can justify just about anything. And one thing that you learn when looking into these causal links that a lot of your initial hypotheses tend to be wrong. So. I want to read, uh, so, so, so that's my main point, and I want to read Aaron's comments here. He kind of uh, expanded on some of what I was saying, or, or he, he had a different point, um, and so he, uh, he sent me this little blurb to read. While we don't have similar government-run camps here in the U.S. that we know about, there are some programs to help redirect people they think are at risk of radicalization specifically targeted toward the risk of Islamic terrorism in the U.S. or the risk of exporting our radicals overseas. Uh, dissimilar efforts exist for other forms of radicalism. I think there are some programs for de-radicalizing those with Nazi and white supremacist beliefs. There are some programs aimed at redirecting at-risk youths who are becoming involved in gang activities, but this is less associated with extreme beliefs. Uh, it also seems that there are more voluntary and nonprofit-run versions of this in the U.S., but they are, in fact, being forced into these programs by the U.S. government. How much of a leg do we have to stand on in criticizing them for this when we are doing the same similar thing here? Um, is it? Uh, I, I would take. Uh, you know, is it? Is it just a matter of degree? I would take the view that as long as these people are keeping to themselves and not harming those around them, they are entitled to believe and practice however they wish. Clearly, the Chinese government has a different take on this, and to be honest, the U.S. government is closer to China than they are to my philosophy on this. This is, of course, troubling. Damn, that went to a dark place, Aaron. Uh, as you said, I agree it went to a dark place. Um, I will have to, um, well, we'll have to discuss that further. Um, localmaxradio.com slash, or localmaxradio at gmail.com if you want to weigh in. Um, all right. So let's try to wrap this up on a couple of positive notes. First, uh, there's an article that I want to share, and I'm not going to go into the specifics here. So uh, if, if you want to read it, you should look at the article. But um I want to share this on the notes. It's labeled, What Happens When an MBA Student Raised in Communist China Reads Hayek? And so this professor observed a very spirited class debate on this when they were exposed to a free market thinker, which might actually be more interesting than debates that go on in American classrooms. I mean, this was an American classroom, but um, this was, you know, in in grad school, uh, you know, in American uh, grad schools, there are a lot of... um, 
you know, a lot of Chinese citizens go to grad schools. I went to school with a lot of them, and you know, it's um, they were my classmates. And um, so, I think that the debate in this article are, are better than the usual debates in American classrooms because we're kind of indoctrinated on the mixed economy here. You know, there's this there's this myth that we're indoctrinated in free market beliefs in the U.S. and we're not. We're uh, you know, our schools teach the 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 virtues of the mixed economy and so the debate kind of happens in the middle versus when you have these very large philosophical debates of command economy versus free economy i think those are very interesting so that'll be on the show notes page localmaxradio.com slash 67 uh finally there is a book i just finished called life after google by george gilder very interesting book the main idea is that google's system of the world with big data and free applications kind of worked to their benefit and to their dominance for many years, like from 2000 to, to now, to 20, almost 2020. Let's, let's, let's round it off. It led to industry concentration with kind of money getting sucked up to the top. In other words, companies like Google. And notice I say big data, not AI, because Artificial intelligence is a very general topic. It's like any time you can make a machine that acts intelligently. And to me, that's always going to be the future. It's just a question of the approach. And big data, quote, big data is the Google approach in many ways. Anyway, this book outlines how this iteration of computing is coming to an end and what's going to replace it. Uh, a big part of that is you know, what uh, George Giller calls the cryptocosm, um, and that's the rise of not just all of these cryptocurrencies, but all these applications based on cryptocurrencies and micropayments. Um, thus, and I don't know how you kill the idea of a free app, but um, but uh, there are some areas where it could be on the way, and um, and also there's a good discussion on you know uh, on uh, VR and um, and augmented reality. Um, so I hope to expand on this on this very show very soon, either by discussing the book in more detail or having George Gilder himself on the show. I did get in touch. So links to the show notes page. Again, localmaxradio.com slash 67. Have a great week, everyone. That's the show. Remember to check out the website at localmaxradio.com. If you want to contact me, the host, or ask a question that I can answer on the show, Send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. This show is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and more. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe to The Local Maximum on one of these platforms and to follow my Twitter account, at Max Sklar. Have a great week. Feel the power. And she said, I don't care what you say. You're going to see me shine.